Hi, and welcome to Bank Talk. This is Charlie Kelly, your host. We started this podcast because we consult in the bank and credit union industry. And while doing that, we keep coming across interesting stories that we'd like to share. The concept being, of course, that a CEO of a bank or a credit union is basically a small business owner. And a lot of times while doing their day job, they just don't have the opportunity to listen to ideas that are coming from all directions. So our goal with Bank Talk is to try to share some of those ideas, get some vendors, uh, other CEOs, and just share some successes from throughout the industry. This is Charlie Kelly with Bank Talk. And today on our pilot episode, we have a great double episode. John Duell, the CEO of Cornerstone Bank, is going to spend a couple minutes with us talking about starting a de novo. And although you know there aren't that many de novo starting these days, um, we find John's story interesting in case uh, anybody that's out there, you know, ever wondered how this stuff gets done. It's just that you know we find the story very interesting and fascinating. Uh, John also is going to share some thoughts on uh, some peer group CEO, a peer group CEO that he had started quite a few years ago and continues on today. And he's going to share some thoughts on just what he gets out of that. Uh, also, on the backside of the episode, we have Aaron Coleman. And Aaron Coleman has uh, some interesting ideas on building a commercial portfolio that um, we just find the, the idea of being very interesting and the concept fascinating. So we hope you enjoy the show and hope you enjoy today's episode. So let's get to it. for joining us today, John. You bet. Thank you. So, John, tell us a little bit about Cornerstone, asset size, where you're located, types of customers, anything you find relevant. Yeah, uh, Charlie, we're a 19-year-old bank in Kansas City. We started from scratch, partner and I did, and we are now about a 270 million. We got up to almost 300 million, but then we shrunk after 08. And now because of COVID, we're growing because we did a lot of the PPP loans. And so we are a single bank location, so we rely on technology. We're in a south suburb of Kansas City. Actually, it's Overland Park, and it's a really good good county and a good community. It's got good, strong um, um, personal incomes and business business uh, location here. And But we do also serve the whole Kansas City metro, Jackson, Johnson, and Wyandotte County. So we're generally a, a kind of a boutique bank. We serve small business owners, high net worth people. We do a little bit of consumer, not a ton. And so we leave the, the big banks to fight over the consumer a- aspect of the of banking. Oh, great. That's no, a, it's a great background. I appreciate you pulling that together for us. Um, so, John, we wanted to spend a couple of time, a couple of minutes just talking de novos. Uh, you know, we're seeing more de novos in the market these days. You know, maybe they have dropped off for a while. So I just was hoping to maybe just pick your brain a little bit on your experience there and understand just sort of what you went through to get one going and, uh, you know, sort of what that what that felt like. Um, okay. So yeah. That's a little bit of background. Yeah, no, no problem. I worked at a big bank, Boatman's, which became B, B of A. I always wanted to run a bank when I was, since I was a little kid. And so it was kind of a hang up in my life. And 
studied finance in college. But so this guy recruited me out of Boatman's to help him start a bank. And we, and I did that. I was his number two guy and he let me do all anything I wanted to. I had to do some fun stuff, had to do the not fun stuff that he didn't want to do. But so I had the benefit of learning from him. I worked for him about 12 years. I kind of thought maybe he should run for governor of the state of Kansas, but he wanted to stay involved in the bank and he wouldn't let me drive the bus. So I eventually had to leave him. I sold my stock back to him, but then did that in January. And then we, we got started on the application process, took us about three or four months. I was out pitching the stock to investors. We raised about five and a half million bucks in about four or five months. Um, and I didn't think I needed any more than that. So the minimum to start was 3 million. So it was pretty low back then. Now it's about 20 million. So it's a, it's a little different game now, but there's about a hundred de novos a year starting when I started the bank. And so it was a, a pretty robust process, but we got application into the Federal Reserve and then into the FDIC. And then the state of Kansas gave us a state bank charter. So it was, uh, it was wild and woolly, but a lot of fun. I look back at some of the funnest times of my life, really. Uh, what was that like? So what, what's that paperwork file look like? Uh, maybe it's not paperwork these days, but somebody um, I remember hearing is quite, a, quite pretty extensive. But. Yeah, it's a big book and you had to kind of like a, a feasibility study. You got to justify why you think you need another bank in Kansas City because there's tons here anyways. Uh, the, you know, the SNL crisis wiped out a bunch and 08 wiped out a bunch. And so there's a lot of less community banks around Kansas City, but it was a big, long, long application, you know, financial statements, background checks, legal documents that you, you had to attest to to the Fed and to all the regulators. I mean, they just didn't want anybody getting in the business because we had had a few people in the bank business in Kansas City that would that they did some things that they shouldn't have done. And so they got they got pretty tight in Kansas City. But nationally, we still opened quite a few de novos when we when we were starting. Oh, good. So how? Yeah. How much different was uh, what what you were putting together for Cornerstone versus having come out of another, you know, sort of 10, 12 year old de novo, uh, different, different, uh, customer group, or was it where you kind of hit the same target customers as, as the previous one? Well, I, I didn't want to purposely call my, my former employers relationship, but okay. obviously as I was there a long time, some of them followed me and wanted to be in my shareholder group. So I, I didn't really call on any of them, but they did follow me. Yeah. Um, but starting from scratch, we looked a lot like our, my prior employer. We did small business loans, builder loans, construction loans out here in South Johnson County. And and we just looked a lot like our investor group because candidly, I had 55 investors, which I thought was too many, but it was a blessing in disguise because we basically just went to them and said, can you throw us a piece of business? And so it allowed us to get, we got profitable in about 20 months, I think it was. And so from there on, we were real pleased because they wanted to do business with us. So it was really easy to get a, a pretty good start. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So, would you recommend? Uh, you know, uh, there, like we said, there probably aren't a ton of them starting up these days. But sounds like you'd say, you know, if I were to ask you if you'd do it again, sounds like it was a positive experience for you. It was positive, but would I do it again? You'd have to ask my wife. And I, I think the answer is, at my age now, I'm 60 years old. I did it 20 years ago. Sure. And, you know, when you're young, you don't think anything can fail. And so that was that was a, a great experience to start, but then 08 hit us and, you know, that was a tough deal. And even 01 when the twin towers fell, we started right after that happened. So that was an unsettling time. I, I guess, no, I wouldn't start again at my age now, but I think young people, younger people that have a specific, you know, niche that they want to serve or, a, you know, a group that are frustrated with their existing bank relationships that they can get things, things started. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's still viable. Yeah, and I, I would say I'd probably see the same things personally with with my kids, right? They uh, my kids are in their twenties and they're starting to do things that I would not do anymore, right? right? I mean, they take risks I wouldn't take, but it's 
That's the reason. Uh, that's the reason uh, the younger person starts the bank, or you know, right. starts right. a new initiative. I suppose, right? Exactly. Okay, good. No, that's excellent. So, so quite a few investors. Some of them became customers. I mean, I think that's a great. Sounds like a great model for success. Yeah, it, it, it with a number of investors, they're all still with with the bank. We had a few that have passed on, but you know, even through the, some of the crises we've been through in this current crisis, nobody's called me up and given me a hard time about the stock price or the stock strategy. I mean, we're, we're sub S so we're passed through on taxes and our stock really went in the toilet with the book value in terms of 08, but we've got most of that back plus some. And so we've returned to shareholders about 60 cents on the dollar of of what they, what they put in, but some of that was tax distribution. So it's not quite a return. The returns now are much better. I mean, I'm not trying to brag or anything, but bank credit quality is in really good shape, even given the COVID issues and and our uh, ROE at the holding company, we've got a little bit of leverage with a bank stock loan is about 21% pre-tax. So we've had some good years recently. Okay. And so as a uh, uh, subchapter S, you're, uh, I'm assuming you're not publicly traded, but this is, this is more just a pass through to the investors, right? Uh, We, we retain some of it for growth. We pay down debt at the holding company. Then we pass through about 50 cents of every dollar earned to shareholders. All of our stuff is, all banks are publicly uh, record. uh, We have to, we have to, you know, register with the government. We have to send our call report in every quarter and you can look at every detail of the bank on that call report. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, It's not a stock that you're going to go pick up out on the street somewhere. No, it's really illiquid. So it's kind of a bad investment if you're looking to, you know, you can't day trade in it. It's not like Apple. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Good. Okay. So, uh, John, I feel fortunate to call you a, a cornerstone, a client of ours. And uh, you told me an interesting story. We're going to kind of move on topic number two here. So I, I certainly appreciate all your input on the Novo side. Um, so, you know, we, you and I talked, had a pretty interesting conversation about a peer group you formed. And I, I believe it was about the time you started uh, the bank. So could you just give me a little bit of feel for that and, and kind of what your thoughts were on it? Well, two things uh, kind of facilitated that. One, I sold an overline to a to a bank that had a branch in Kansas City, but he was basing Garden, Garden City, Kansas, I, I guess. Right. So I sold, sold a part of a loan that I couldn't make because it was too big. And then I'll be darned if the guy didn't personally call on my client and say, I can get you a better rate. And okay. so I, I was kind of hurt by that. I felt like that was kind of a stab in the back. And then um, in Kansas City, it's a pretty small community and all the bankers know each other and we're all trying to steal each other's business. And so I didn't really want to be in a, in a peer group with local local bankers. I, I, I try to avoid them if I can. So, yeah. <laughs> and then the other thing, I went to a fancy conference in Arizona, which was really expensive. And we sat at a table for 30 minutes on the last day of the conference with other guys, my same asset size. And I'm like, man, that's really the most value I got out of the whole conference. I wonder if that's available. And so a guy, when I got back to Kansas City, a guy hooked me up with a guy who used to work for American Express and he, he was running peer groups for wealth management firms. And so he would get these groups together and they would shop, you know, talk shop and exchange ideas. And he said, well, I can do that for you with banks if you want to. Why don't you, why don't you see if you can get a group of banks that might be interested in it? I can facilitate it for you. Great. And, okay. and so we did, we, we looked at, I, at that time, I was still, you know, new to the business, de novo business at least. And so I, there's a report from the FFIEC, which is the federal or the FDIC, and you can get all the de novos and what their numbers look like. Mm-hmm. So I went down that in the, in the, across the country and, and I got the last three years of startup de novos. And then I looked at their numbers and see, was, found the ones that were being the most successful. And then that's who I invited. I sent out about 25 letters and said, you guys want to come to Kansas City for a short, you know, day and a half meeting. It's all bank, no, no golf, 
no wives, no boondoggles, just a, a, a peer-to-peer meeting, and we're going to share ideas. And here we've been going on like 12, 13 years now, I think. So it's okay. it's worked pretty well for me. Yeah, what is the – so the mixture – I, it sounds like maybe you went outside of the of the at least the city and potentially outside of the state to go do some digging. At least uh, you know when you initially went out there to go find them, and and maybe just the nature of your peer group lined up who you could who you could look at. And, you know, you might not have had that many of them in the local area anyhow. Um, how many are how many remain? So the, so how many you start with? How many remain? You know, and is that a successful size for the group? Um, yeah, we have about eight eight banks in the group now, and and honestly, it's like any any association they come and go, and we've actually turned over. Everybody has turned over, but the the guys that have been in the group the longest, they've been in maybe six or seven years. There's three or four of them, and and we we try to add one or two a year because we know that somebody somebody's going to fall off in the next year or two because. You wouldn't you'd be amazed. I mean, there's 12, there used to be 16,000 banks. Now they're down to 6,100 banks. Everybody gets sold or thinks about selling debt, taxes, divorce, something happens. It just, it's inevitable. We've had them from California to Washington, D.C., from Minneapolis down to, down to uh, Pensacola Bay down in Florida. And presently we've got them in Texas, St. Louis, uh, two, two in Texas, Denton, Houston. I'm in Overland Park. Um, we got a guy in uh, Quad Cities, Iowa, and then we got a guy in Tulsa who's really been very successful. Just picked up a, a lady that bought a bank in Andover, Kansas, which is which is just outside of Wichita, Kansas. So it, the the largest is about eight hundred million. The smallest is about a hundred million, but we try to be in that two fifty range. Yeah, that's because then you're all talking shop in the same direction. Yeah, we did have some publicly traded guys in early on from Seattle, and then we the guy in Washington D.C. got to be two billion in size. The guy in Minneapolis got to be $2 billion in size. So th- that wasn't really a fit because you're not talking peers. You're talking, you know, those guys have plenty of staff. They can do things independently of, of what we could provide them. Yeah, I gotcha. Okay, okay, that's great. Um, so probably a couple of other questions related to that. So the, I think probably maybe the first one is what what does that agenda look like? You know, as you guys get together, what, what do you find the most useful within the agenda? Is it operational? Is it uh, strategic? Is it, you know... What portion of that you find useful for your bank when, you know, you had said uh, when you get together uh, with some of the other bankers events, you didn't always have content that was necessarily 100% useful to you, but these you must find more useful. Uh, yeah. I mean, we have an accountability thing. There's three or four things you, you leave with that you say you'll do by the next meeting. So we do the accountability and then we do updates on the banks and every bank is a little different flavor, but a lot of these guys want to grow to be a billion dollars. So a lot of them have high growth aspirations, which brings capital needs on as well. And so, uh, but most recently we've had some zoom meetings where we've just been talking about COVID and the PPP loan program. And so that's been incredibly helpful because we can see, you know, is a portal open for you guys? Are you making the loans? Have you gotten your fees? Have they actually been paid out? Are you making, you, you know, nobody's doing forgiveness yet because it's not available, but it's it, like my CFO can talk to other CFOs in the group. My compliance guy can talk to other compliance guys in the group. So it, it gives you a wide access to, really a large expertise in the industry. Yeah. It sounds like they're, everybody's dealing with, well, you know, when it comes to COVID and the PPP, uh, nice to be able to hear from somebody that, that uh, is having the same problems you are kind of running the same leak as you are. Yeah. It's very interesting because the guy in Tulsa let his, he just swung his vault door wide open. He says any and anybody can come customer, non-customer. And he ended up getting 1200 
applications for almost $120 million. And so, and, and he got himself in a bind a little bit because he couldn't take care of existing clients. And so we generally did existing clients and, and referrals only. We only had a few that were non-customers, but they became customers. So gotcha. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Th- and th- side question there. Did you find that uh, you, you felt like you were net new customer or, or do you feel like you may have lost somebody, somebody else who was also doing PPPs? Um, no, I don't think we lost anybody, but we do have, you know, a lot of, key, a lot of guys bank at two banks or three banks. And so we had a couple of clients that went and got their PPP money with, where they had another account relationship, but we, we worked through the night all night, one night. And, you know, we put them on the portal and got them all uploaded. We did everything that was presented to us. We didn't turn anybody away. So it was a little hairy when they ran out because we had a few latecomers that we had to carry over to the next offering. Gotcha. Okay, good. Good. Well, that's a great experience. Uh, okay, so uh, a couple more questions and then we'll, we'll wrap this up. But uh, like most of our listeners, you probably, outside of your peer group, right, you probably have other bankers associations that you're, you're affiliated with. Any thoughts there on, on how they might improve their offering to the banks, you know, as, when it comes to maybe not peer groups, but, but you know, uh, joint get-togethers? Yeah, I'm still going to a number of conferences, which is uh, which I didn't for a long time go to any conferences. But I'm 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 still going occasionally to the acquire or be acquired conference in Phoenix, which is expensive and it's kind of a high dollar thing. But it it tells me about the value of the bank, the liquidity of the bank, and those kind of things. If we should decide someday to try to exit our investment, it's not in our wheelhouse, but that's something I think I need to keep an eye on a little closer. And then uh, we we dropped our membership in the ABA. The the organization's outstanding. But I just felt like it was more big bank focused than it was community bank. So the one I, that I'm really loyal to is the ICBA. I think they're a very good trade association for, for my size of a bank. And, and I think they put out competitive stuff and it's, you know, it's voluminous. They got a lot of stuff, but I mean, I think in general, we found uh, good relationships with some of our key vendor partners that we use uh, there. Okay. Great. Great. And did you, within the ICBA, have you attended any of their uh, bank get-togethers or peer get-togethers and anything you find useful there? Or, or yeah. are you really kind of relying on this peer group to, to do the majority of that for you? Um, no, I mean, I've, I've started going to these things a little bit more. First of all, some of them are in fun places. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess I'm, I guess I'm a, I have a little bit of boondoggle in me, but you know, when they, sure. and then oh, we also use Swigsby, the Southwest Conference of, down in at SMU in Dallas, but that's an association. We, we go to some of their meetings, but I guess ICBA, I always feel like they, they really are in our corner. And so uh, actually we also are a member of the KBA, which is Kansas Bankers Association. And we'll occasionally get a re- referral from there as, as far as a vendor partner. Yeah, sure. Sure. Okay. Last question. Uh, any stories you wish to share about either a specific customer or hurdle you tried to overcome? Is there anything, any interesting stories that might be useful to, uh, listeners or any of your CEO counterparts? Well, um, I, I think we're re- most recently we've, we're pulling some good clients from some of the larger banks in Kansas City because we've got a little bit better flexibility, obviously a lot faster speed. Our officers have 15 years plus, which is unusual in loan officers. Um, we treat them like real people. We don't treat them just like a customer relationship. It's, you know, we give them our cell phone numbers, tell us, tell them to call anytime and and, and we feel like we have a pretty good partnership here where our unconditional guarantees are we're going to get back with you real quick. You're going to have some financial expertise on your team, and we're going to probably save you some money on your bank relationship just because we're more nimble and we don't have the overhead with a, a larger bank has. So we feel like we're still relevant. I know a lot of people say banks under a billion are not going to be around or they're not relevant. But, you know, we got a 
$235 million loan portfolio. I, I'd like to think that's relevant to helping, you know, some segment of society to, to get their, you know, their accomplishments and employ the people that they do. I mean, it's not because of me, but I mean, I, th- I think we, we are providing good competitor services in, in the community bankers space here in Kansas City. That's great. Yeah, you know, oddly enough, I just had a discussion with my banker. Uh, uh, I moved not not long ago from a pretty good sized bank here in the Milwaukee area to uh, a smaller one, quite a bit smaller, commercial based. You know, pretty similar to the way you guys are operating. And uh, we just had a conversation a couple hours ago. Same, same yeah. topic, right? The the big one just didn't they didn't meet the commercial need. They didn't uh, you know didn't value the customer. Didn't uh, you know it was awful hard to to you just went through a lot more hoops that that seemed like they were risk related and benefited the bank and not necessarily benefited the customer. So Yeah, I mean I worked at a big bank and and so you know we always I mean I was chasing relationships out of St. Louis that were really huge and you know we're not banking uh Disney World, we're not banking Sprint. I mean, you know, we're we're so I mean I get big bank needs and things like that, but I mean ours are just crumbs from the big bank and we can we can do just fine for shareholders and clients and for staff at that at that level that's great okay well thank you uh john i, I certainly appreciate it it's been a, a great talk and i, I think learned something here uh, both both the de novo side as well as the uh the peer group piece so thank great. you for your time I really appreciate thanks charlie all right anytime appreciate it very much okay thank you Hi, uh, Charlie Kelly here for the second half of the podcast. Today, I've got with me Aaron Coleman from uh, Z Suite Technologies. You know, those of you who have listened to the podcast before know, we try to treat the second half of our podcast as an educational item. You know, let's face it, a lot of CEOs or folks working inside of banks and credit unions don't necessarily want to hear from another sales guy, right? But at the same time, you know, a lot of the discussions that we have around the industry just lead to interesting ideas that uh, just can help folks out. Uh, you know, let's face it, anybody that's running a community bank or a credit union is basically a small business owner and they have a limited amount of time to go shopping. So uh, these are not paid. We, we don't have folks come in and pay us. We're not nearly that sophisticated on the podcast here. We These are ideas that we've found inside the industry that we think might just, you know, open your eyes a little bit or get you thinking in a different way. So with that said, uh, Aaron Coleman from Z Suite Technologies is with us. Uh, Aaron and I met through Jay Tooley over at Leader Bank. And uh, Aaron, when, when Jay told me about the initial field, I thought, you know, what, a, what an interesting idea from from the perspective of you know, help your customer get their work done and it'll lead to better things for the bank. So with that said, um, set me up on the, I'll set this up just a little bit, right? You have an interesting set of products designed to allow banks to more or less upsell their customers, bring in, you know, more lending business, more deposits, et cetera. So, you know, more or less a win-win. You want to you give me a little more detail around that, Aaron, or, or just help me uh, frame it a little bit better than that? Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, Charlie, thank you for having me here today. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to talk with you and talk with your listeners, and hopefully uh, uh, give give everybody a little better understanding of what we do. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Our our whole goal as as a company is to create that win win, not only for the banker but their the end users, and and create a just just great user experience for everybody involved. And you know, we know that community banks really like to work with landlords and property managers, and there's some very specific reasons for that. They're very they're highly profitable. They have very sticky deposits. They typically carry large balances uh, within those accounts. 
And landlords and property managers are usually looking to finance a lot of different types of opportunities and projects that they're involved in. So there's a lot of really good reasons that community bankers are looking to partner and bank with these different types of landlords in the marketplace. Uh, unfortunately, it's also a very highly competitive market. <laughs> and as uh, your listeners can probably attest to, uh, these are very sought after type clients and uh, any, any way you can create a competitive advantage is going to help that banker out. So that's what we set out to to do as a company. And that's what uh, that's what Z Rent and Z Deposit is all about. They're two products that allow those uh, landlords and, and property managers drive efficiency and provide a really clean user experience for their tenant. So Z Rent is our digital platform for landlords and property managers to use for collecting rent payments online. And Z Deposit is our digital platform for the online opening, funding, and compliance management of the tenant security deposit. And we can talk later about why that's important. But again, no, that's good. That's a yeah. no, that's a great way to frame it. So yeah. Now I'm gonna throw a little personal experience in this, right? The, yeah. Uh, my daughter is a uh, person, you know, came out of college a couple of years ago. Yeah, started a couple of jobs working internally, and really wants to be a real estate magnet someday, right? Okay. <laughs> so. You know, she's reading all these real estate, get rich quick books, et cetera, right? And, and I think they, in that universe, right, I think it is, you know, get your first duplex, you know, try to try to refinance it to the point where you start building equity. And then from there, clean the place up, increase the rents, move on to the next one. So, you know, your your concept around what this business looks like from a banking perspective generally thinks about it as a deposit and or a loan, Right. They don't think about structure of the people behind it and what what you know these large or anybody who who you know bought their first duplex or four, or four family uh, you know is trying to get out of it, which is stability without the work, right? Uh, it might you know again I'm probably paraphrasing that terribly, but it's the ability to have no, an income stream or build equity and then beyond there you know can continue to build it, but not have to collect rents, right? Not have to do all those things that. You know, if you ever own one of these, you know what, what I'm talking about. It's, you know, there's you know, dealing with a tenant is not always fun. So uh, I think that I think that links together because as I think about, you know, the loan she takes out on this, you know, she actually just bought a duplex a couple of weeks ago, right? So as she, as she, you know, thought about how to take out the loan on that duplex, right? She wasn't even thinking about the bank. She, she you know, she took the loan out with the bank that she's always banked with. And then she started running into problems, you know, because, you know, it's set up as a, as a business, right? She started running into the problems that you usually get with a larger bank, which is, you know, you've got, you've got procedures and all these things that a smaller bank could just handle better. So, you know, when you get to a, get to a, or a city bank or somebody like it, right, there's process that doesn't make, you know, all the time make a small business doing business really easy to do. So, you know, for what that's worth, that's my, that's my worst story around this thing. And, and I think as we talk about, you know, the experience from the landlord perspective, right? What, I, what was it, what intrigued me about what you guys are doing over at Z-Suite is, you know, you kind of had a, a dual role, right? To some degree, this was a, a set of products that came out of Leader. And we've got, we've got a Jay from Leader on, a, on another podcast coming up, but it came out of Leader because Leader as a bank found these things to be successful for their customer base. So let's let's just spend a couple of minutes more around it. So effectively, if I can paraphrase, the the rents product allows uh, somebody who owns a duplex, a four family, you know, somebody that doesn't have the ability to buy another tool or doesn't, you know, isn't making enough money to buy another 
tool to go to their bank, come back and, and use this tool via their bank, right? And then the, the benefit to the bank is to get the deposit, get the, uh, get the loan, and continue to get the next one every time they go out and buy their next new is it did I did I paraphrase that too shortly, or is there anything else you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I I, I would just say that it's uh, not only get the deposit, but get their operating account. And, and landlords typically carry pretty large operating accounts, and that's one of the big benefits of this. But also, it's a uh, it's about driving value, offering real value to that landlord client, that property management client. Uh, just like you said, that that otherwise would maybe have to go to the marketplace and search for a solution or do it themselves and uh, have to pay money for that solution. And if they're doing it themselves, uh, valuable time. And this puts a bank in a pretty good position to be able to offer real competitive value for them uh, that makes a, a real impact on their on their business. So let's let's spend just a minute on security deposits because you educated me on this a few weeks ago. And it's just it's fascinating to me. Right. I guess as I think about security deposit legislation, right? Yeah. I, I I never knew whether that was state based, U.S. based, city based, right? But I think what I think sure. what I learned out of that was that everybody's got a slightly different law around how they treat security deposits and what the the landlord is required to do from a tenancy law perspective. Can you? Educate me a little more. Hit me again with some of the things we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's, that's a really good call out. And I'll give your listeners just a little bit of background. This product, as you mentioned before, was designed uh, by Leader Bank. And they're in Massachusetts. And Massachusetts has probably the toughest, most stringent landlord laws in the country. And uh, Leader Bank knew that. And they knew that their existing, uh, their landlord clients were really struggling to stay compliant with those laws. And so much so that a lot of the landlords just gave up in collecting security deposits, if you can imagine that, because the laws were so onerous, uh, they were getting hit with all kinds of penalties. They couldn't stay in compliance. And they said, they just kind of threw their hands up. So we're done collecting security deposits. It's too big of a pain. And Leader Bank went down the path. You know what? If we could solve this problem for them, I think it'll help us collect some deposits. And I think it'll provide, again, real value for that landlord. That's what they went down the process of doing. And based on the success uh, we had in Massachusetts, we started looking at all the laws across the country and really identified about 26 states around the United States have pretty strict regulations. And within that 26, 13 of them have really strict regulations. And here, so here's what I mean by that. What are those regulations? The first one is uh, the landlord is required to pay interest on the security deposits back to the tenant. And sometimes that interest rate might just be a couple basis points, uh, but it has to be paid by a specific time, usually on the annual renewal of the lease uh, back to that tenant, because those are the tenant's dollars and the landlord is required to pay them interest uh, by keeping those dollars. So that's, so that's the first one. Yeah, let me stop you there because that's a really yeah. fascinating one. So even though your bank typically is not getting much on a deposit these days, right? Even right. though you know you're not making a ton on your DDA accounts, if that's where you opt to keep them, right? And and maybe you're paying out just a smidgen on savings accounts, right? Mm -hmm. The the laws have it set up so that the landlord has to pay them something in, in, in interest, even if interest doesn't exist today. And, I, and of course, that's paraphrased and probably paraphrased terribly. But but I mean, that's a, just an interesting dynamic, the way I was thinking about that piece of it. Yeah, what I've typically seen right now is like five to 10 basis points is all they're paying out right now on, on those. So it's, it's a pretty nominal amount. However, if they fail to pay it, the, the tenant attorney out there uh, can definitely go after them and create quite a penalty for them. So it's great. It's, okay. It's, yeah. Tell me about, I, I know you 
you showed me sort of your uh, uh, how you line up a state. So, so explain the rest of the laws. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it was just to me, it's just a fascinating concept, right? So, sure. Tell me about other things that that uh, the tenant, the, the landlords have to deal with these days in some of these areas. Yeah. So they they also need to keep the security deposits in a separate operating escrow or a separate escrow account. It can't be commingled in their operating accounts at all. It needs to be in a separate escrow account. And for a lot of these mom and pop landlords, maybe have one to two properties, three properties, they don't even know what an escrow account is. <laughs> so that, that creates a bit of a problem there. Sure. Um, and then those tenants need to be notified on a regular basis about where the funds are being held, what the account number is, what the bank name is, all that kind of thing. And that has to be a very specific process and how they're notified. And so then actually- is- yeah. yeah, let me ask you one question just to clarify for our, our listeners. So when you say a separate escrow account, is that a separate escrow account per tenant or is it a separate escrow account where all of the security deposits are held at the same time? In other words, if I've got four units, is that one account for the four units or is that four accounts? No, it needs to be a separate account for each tenant. Really? So it becomes four individual accounts that that person has to set up and somehow manage. Correct. Wow. Okay. All right. That's that's good information. Didn't really understand yeah. that part. Okay. So kind of the fourth big piece of legislation, and this actually, they all require that upon the termination of the lease, the landlord has to provide an itemized deduction if they're holding back any of the funds. So let's say there needs to be new carpet, uh, maybe uh, new paint, anything like that, a, a new, new drywall. Uh, that has to be documented and it has to be itemized and it has to be sent out in a very specific format to that tenant to sign off on. Um, So that can be a a difficult process for landlords, especially the mom and pops, the non-professional property managers. Yeah. Upon the termination of that lease, all 50 states require that those funds be returned in a certain number of days. And so you've got some some really tight restrictions in places like New York and Vermont that have 14-day turnarounds. And then you've got some some more lenient states like Kentucky or Alabama that uh, allow the landlord to keep those funds for 60 days. Uh, So it just kind of, all the states have a a, a different rule around uh, how many days it it takes to, to come back. Okay, great, great. Oh, that's that's fascinating. This is why it was kind of a problem in Massachusetts. If any of these those things I just mentioned, if they're out of compliance with any of those, um, a, a tenant rights attorney can go after that landlord, and the penalty can be anywhere from two x to four x that security deposit back to the tenant. And uh, therefore, it becomes a and those tenant attorneys out there know that <laughs> they're looking to exploit those loopholes, and that's why. That's why where we're, especially on the Z deposit side, when we're out there talking with landlords, they really love the automation of the process because it keeps them in compliance and it automates all of these, these very difficult tasks for some of them uh, in one specific platform. And it's, like I said, it's all automated. Yeah, gotcha. So which is the, and again, I'm not having to call everybody out here, but, but so what are the worst states as far as, as far as from a landlord's perspective and trying to manage this? I know you said there were, there were, you know, 13, I think you said that were really tough, Right. Yeah. Uh, is any any worse than the other? Or how do you think about that? They're, they're just very tenant friendly, meaning they're okay. just, they're set up to protect the tenant and the landlords are eh, maybe have a bit of a stack deck against them. Um, but that does, that means uh, you just need some technology to help you. But mostly in the Northeast is, oh, is where Northeast those, is pretty rough. Okay. those most difficult, Massachusetts, New York, New Hampshire, uh, Pennsylvania, District of Columbia, those Connecticut's, uh, they they tend to have the tightest laws around, you know, the kind of the tenor rights. So, okay. All right. so how does a, in your experience, do banks manage this? If they don't have an automated tool, right, that they yeah. can provide their customers, 
how do they manage it? Is this a lockbox? Is it a, right? I mean, you, you clearly talk to customers where they have some, probably some manual process around it, or, or they don't bother and they just let the tenants deal with it, right? What, what do you see out there? What, you know, yeah. do, do, do banks and credit unions have a response to this or? You know, it, it's been really interesting. Uh, they're, um, they, they don't really have a very good process in place. They, they, really, the way they've been dealing with it is throwing people at it. Uh, people in spreadsheets. <laughs> and, uh, wow. um, there's just really not another solution in the marketplace right now that that helps manage with the uh, tenant security deposits and more more specifically the compliance around those tenant security deposits. I was talking with a bank just just before the pandemic hit in March, and it was it was a large East Coast bank. And as we got into the discussion, somebody raised their hand and said, wait, let me understand this. You guys do this, this, and this around those 10 security deposits? And we said, yes. She goes, my entire team spends about half the month doing that right now. Wow. She goes, and based on what I just saw here, that would free up my team to start working on these other projects we'd like to be working on and be more, way more efficient within the bank. Absolutely. That is exactly what it is. And, and that's been across the board. That This was a larger bank. They had an entire department kind of committed to this. But a lot of the community banks that we're talking to, they, they've got one to two people that spend a lot of time just managing, uh, like I said, the interest and, and the notifications and, and make, helping their landlords deal with those different compliance uh, aspects out there. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I actually heard that. I had passed the uh, referral on to you guys, and I, when I heard how it was being done, I was just shaking my head thinking, I mean, I guess, you know, there is no alternative to, and, and not even the security, but maybe it's just even the rent side of it, right? Is, you know, you either have to be of a certain size or you can buy a product that is, you know, is a landlord product, but, uh, you know, for probably a big chunk of them, and I don't know if that's, you know, using the 80-20 rule, I don't know if that's 80% of them, just own a couple of units, Right. So, yeah, uh, uh, you know, that that group alone, which does make up, you know, a fair amount of uh, community bank business. Right. If the alternative to helping the customer is a bunch of is a pile of spreadsheets in a lockbox, that just seems like I uh, just, you know, that, that seems like a nightmare. You're, you're certainly as a community banker going out of your way to get that done for them. And by going out of the way, I mean, you're throwing to get that commercial business in yeah. you know, your town, your bank. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but let me let me clarify that a little bit. Um, so with that. And this, this is good for your listeners to understand, but a lot of the larger property managers out there are using enterprise level software. And it's 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 great software. Uh, there's a lot of companies, Yardi, Appfolio, Buildium, Tenant Cloud. I mean, there's a lot of good companies out there that help manage the rent collection process, but really help manage the entire rental relationship, whether it be background checks, application requests, building, building maintenance requests, that type of thing, homeowner association stuff. They do a really good job. However, none of those offer a tenant security deposit application. Not a single one of them does. And that's oh. where where we found some, some success even with those larger folks. And also the other big piece of it is none of those are offered exclusively through community banks. And that's where Z Rent and Z Deposit combined can offer a lot of value for a community banker in talking to those uh, landlords and property managers within their community. And is that because the the banker is effectively offering it as a product and in some cases free, maybe in all cases free to keep that business in the bank Absolutely. rather than rather than down the street at Chase or somebody, you know, somebody larger, right? Yeah. And we recommend that they offer it at no charge. You know, the fee income they could generate would be nominal compared to the other benefits of collecting those, those large balances and those low cost deposits. I mean, that's, you mentioned Leader Bank earlier. That was their that was their whole goal. How do we grow deposits without having to throw traditional dollars at new branches, brick and mortar, more people? 
what are how can we use software to develop uh, or to generate new deposits? And that's that's exactly what they've done. Yeah, it's done very well for them too. I, I know Jay's on a future episode, so some of our listeners will hear hear some of that story. But you know, oh, just from a uh, the way they built it and the amount of time they built it in is a it's a great story and a great you know tons of great brand. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good. No, I think that's all good. Is there anything I missed? I mean, I just, I think this is good education around, you know, parts of business that your customers, right? If you're a, if you are a CEO of a bank or a credit union, you are a small business owner, right? The, the yep. problem is, is that, is that sometimes you don't always understand what other business owners in different industries are dealing with. And this is, I think, just kind of good education around, around this segment, which is, you know, landlord, tenant, and, and, you know, maybe maybe on the small end of it, but it doesn't always lead to small deposits, right? Or small, small loans. It's, these are these are loans that typically don't, you don't get a lot of, they, they seem to hang around, right? It's a, it's an equity builder. It's, you know, they don't flip over quite as much as maybe a commercial building would, um, you know, something along those lines. So I think it's just, you know, great information. Absolutely. These are great customers. If I, if I could maybe just tell one story that I think yeah, no, encapsulates exactly what you just said. And, and I think it's important that your, your bank listeners out there, this isn't just a retention tool. A lot of banks that we talk to think about their existing portfolio. This could be something that really helps your commercial team go out and grow new business and bring in those new deposits and bring in those new loans. And I, I think this is a great story. It's and it's uh, been duplicated at many banks that we've talked with, but this one in particular was one that we got invited into. It was one of our newer partner banks in the Massachusetts area. And they finally landed an appointment with a key business in their community that they'd been trying to get to for a long time. And they were able to get the business or get the appointment because of the property management tools. They finally had this in and, and it piqued this business owner's interest just enough to say, okay, I'd like to meet with you. And uh, it's the guy owned an auto body shop, uh, but also had multiple properties and a few other businesses as well. And he was well known in their community as, hey, this is a pretty savvy business guy and uh, definitely worth a lot and invited to come in to pitch the product. Uh, it was a big enough account to the bank that said, hey, we'd, we'd like you just to come with us and, and participate in this. Within five minutes of the discussion, the business owner, owner said, I'm in, I'm in. And the um, banker looked at, looked at him and said, well, okay, great. Does that mean you want to move forward with transitioning some of your properties over to us? And the owner said, yep. And everything else too. I want to bring my property management business. I'm going to bring my auto shop business and also all of my operating accounts. And also I'm looking to refinance some of my properties. Can you guys help me with that? And with just one conversation, and it didn't even take that long, uh, this particular bank picked up a lot of business on both deposits and, and on the loan side. And it was all because there was just this one simple tool that helped them differentiate themselves from the competition. Right. Yeah. I would say that I would say that at any point, right. Those, those commercial relationships, you know, you, you think of them as pretty stable with their bank, but I think as we talk to small business owners that are looking for, you know, the next, well, well somebody that services them a little bit better, right. This is a, this is a, you know, here's how we're bigger. Here's how we're better than the big guys type of a tool, because, you know, just a, it doesn't fit in the portfolio of a city bank. Right. Right. It wouldn't it wouldn't make sense. They don't have those types of relationships. So, right. yeah, yeah, something like that. You know, any value add you can come up with that when you tell them it's free and it's going to save them time. Yeah. I, you know, I, it's awful hard to say no to that. Yeah. Right? And it, maybe it's not always free, but it's free enough versus the hours they might be putting in managing this stuff. Right. Yeah. And and you're right. Anything you can do in such a low rate environment to help you compete is is going to make a difference. 
And uh, I mean, absolutely services is one critical aspect of that, but the, the different types of tools that you pr provide that add just a little bit of additional value really stand out in a low rate environment. Yeah, that's good stuff. Okay, uh, so thank you, for, thank you for educating us on that. I did want to spend just one, um, one minute on your previous background because I, I found that, uh, you know, I just found your background interesting. You used to work for the, uh, the Casasa folks, right? I did. And, and another tool there that, to me, right, it's another value add. It's a customer stickiness type of a tool. You know, those those types of things to me are very appealing for a banker because it's a win. You know, it's a win-win type of a right. That's it, correct. It's a win-win type of deal. Any experiences you could share there that might help our listeners? And you know, for those of you not familiar with the Success Project, it's it's effectively a deposit rewards program, and with you know, quite a bit more. It's, Certainly more robust than that. I don't mean to. I don't mean to. Uh, you know, minimize their product. But any, you know, anything come out of that that you you found helpful on the commercial side? Yeah, I, I did. I, I think that's a good question. Both both the CEO of, our, of Z Suite and myself came from Casas, and we had we had a really good run there. It was it was a lot of fun, and we had a lot of success there. And. You're right. That that company was all about driving customer loyalty and what can by providing those different types of reward products, how could they drive that? And I, I think the big takeaway from my experience there and, and where what we've learned and what we're trying to implement here is that um, the importance of doing market research to truly, truly understand how does the consumer, how does that customer define value? And I, that plays in both on the consumer side and on the commercial side. And we spent a lot of time there doing market research and trying to identify that true value. I think a lot of fintechs and a lot of bankers make the mistake of defining value based on their own experiences and unfortunately not seeking that insight from the actual consumers and commercial businesses within the marketplace. And so that's what we think is by far the most important success factor for uh, any bank fo focused on commercial is really spend time trying to understand what is it that they need to help them do their business better. And it's changed. I mean, technology has changed a lot of things over the past 10 years. And the answers from 2010 are completely different in 2020. And I think as fintechs and as banks, we need to pay attention to that. And we need to put in place those tools that that really add that value and, and provide the, the level of service that they're looking for. Yeah, no, that's a great, I, I think that's a just a great perspective, right? And if it, you know, kind of translate that back to what a, a banker or a CEO does for a living, a lot of them, you know, have come from the from the commercial space where relationships mean a lot, right? Yeah. And I, you know, the way I think about it on that side is, is, you know, if you don't know your customer's customer, you're not going to do very well. Right. This is it'll it'll be, you know, you won't be the top producing commercial loan guy. Right. You won't be the top producing retail loan person. Right. Or right. business relationship person. If you really don't spend a little bit of time digging into what their customers problems are and, you know, helping them solve for those types of things. It's all good stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate you joining us. Um, so where can folks, if somebody, you know, looks at or listens through this and says, uh, boy, you know, those are some interesting ideas. Where can folks get a hold of you? Yeah, they could. Uh, our website is zsuitetech.com. Uh, that's a that's a great starting point. Anybody would like to reach out to me directly. It's just Aaron, A-A-R-O-N at zsuitetech.com. And I'd be more than happy to, to jump on the phone and talk through any of the things that you just heard. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Like I said, just good education, right? Just good education about something that maybe isn't top of mind for you know a lot of the folks running these these banks and credit unions. So Absolutely. I appreciate your time on this. Yeah, Charlie, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here with you and hope it was helpful and 
Uh, like well, I said, if everybody wants to, to learn more, feel free to give me a call anytime. Okay, very good. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate you joining us. Okay, a big thanks to John and Aaron. I really like John's comments on the peer groups because I, I really believe that a lot of bank, community bank CEOs don't want to share uh, their thoughts in a peer group at like a state bankers association because they're afraid of who might be in the meeting and whether it's a CEO that might be, you know, within their geographical footprint. So, you know, this concept of looking for a peer group of a certain size that's um, outside your geographical area where you know you're not going to have to bump into them, I think is a really interesting concept. And, you know, they aren't easy to start. Uh, clearly, it takes a little bit to get them going. But um, if you find the right group of people, I think you get an awful lot out of it. So on our next episode, uh, we talked to Jay Tooley, CEO of LeaderBank. And uh, Jay just has some really interesting ideas on how to build a stable of commercial and retail lenders that I think you're, you're going to want to hear. And we'll talk through that in the episode, but you'll, you'll see that uh, the reason we picked Jay to be on the show is Jay's got some really interesting ideas and, and the bank is doing phenomenally in this area. So I think uh, it's worth, it's a discussion worth listening to. Okay. Until next time, this is Charlie Kelly, your host of uh, bank talk and uh, keep on learning.